Um, uh, yesterday, some of you will know because you may have seen it on Facebook, was my 35th birthday. Can you believe that? No. No, that was not a prompt for a song, Simon Parnham. Uh, Yes, <laughs> the, so th 35, so um, obviously, you know, entering that phase where midlife crisis is very much on the cards, uh, so I've, I've, had a new, I've had a new haircut, um, which I'm hoping takes at least five years off me, so it takes at least, I would say at least five stone off the weight of my head, you may have noticed uh, that it was getting quite substantial, uh, so... So a few changes there, but yeah, I had a lovely day, and um, it's great to be with you this morning. This morning we're going to look at a story um, which is kind of seasonal, I suppose, and you may think, well, what is this season? Uh, well, uh, in the kind of Christian calendar, uh, we are between the resurrection and Pentecost. We're in that uh, that part of the Bible where Jesus is out of the tomb and walking the earth again uh, wonderfully resurrected but before uh, he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 2 and the Spirit, Holy Spirit comes upon the church and it's kind of this interesting 40 day interim space between these two extraordinary events where a Jesus is kind of unpacking to this kind of fledgling group of people who he uh, really is and what the job ahead is really about. And uh, so we're going to have a look at one of these uh, stories that take place in between uh, these two times because it's that time of year. Um, it is a story that we're looking at this morning about stories. It's a story about stories. And it's really important, I think, for us to remember that gospel means good news. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom is, is, is a good news story. It's about an event. It's about something that happened as a result of which the world is different. And people, that's a story that people need to know. Um, and, and, and too often, I think, in, in, in church history, what has been good news has, in fact, become good ideas. Or even worse than that, good advice. And uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, a few good ideas, and there's nothing wrong with some good advice. God knows I need it from time to time. Uh, but the reality is this, that... that, that the essence of what our message is, is a story about something that happened, an event that took place about which the whole world, um, as a result of which the whole world is different. Um, and Paul, this is, this is, I think, a more important point than we've really come to terms with. Paul says, uh, I think at the beginning of Romans, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So it's, it's really important. If, it, if there is extraordinary power in this, that we're actually presenting the right thing. Not a set of ideas 
or a, a philosophy, a few kind of presuppositions for you to think through. But a story, I wonder if somebody asked you, you know, what is it that, that Christians believe? If you would begin to tell a story, or if you would begin to relay some ideas. I think the power is in the story. I think God has put a power in just this simple telling of the story. Which has the power to save. The power to save is in the story. If you remember nothing else about this morning, and you may not, <laughs> then, then remember that. I'm just being realistic. Then remember, then, then remember that. The power is in the story. Stories are themselves kind of, they're powerful anyway. Um, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and about what the world is like are, have incredible power in our own lives. We kind of live within stories. The kind of, you know, however free we think we are or however kind of hemmed in we think we are is often expressed in a story within our heads of how we see the world and how we see our place in it. You know, God himself created the world through words, through, in a sense, a story. He told the story of creation and creation came into being. And, and actually human beings, because they're made in his image, their words have power. Their stories have power. Our words create worlds. And we live inside these worlds. So it's incredibly important. And maybe this is why we need to be sure that when we're telling the gospel, we're telling the story because it's the story that you can live inside. It's the story that can create a space for people to, to live and exist that is freer and larger and bigger than the one that they're living in to this point. So we're going to look at this story. Uh, we're in Luke and chapter 24. And I'll read from 1 to 35. Okay. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they went to the tomb. That's a couple of the disciples. Taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So they're, they're, they're coming to the tomb. They're expecting Jesus to be in the tomb, and they're coming to anoint his body with, uh, with spices and various kind of oils and honor him. Because he was their friend. But when they go there, they're finding this extraordinary thing has happened where the stone, this enormous stone that was rolled in front of the tomb, is now no longer there and they can't find the body 
of Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They were very well dressed. That's not what that means. I don't think that's what that means. Um, And as uh, they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Good question. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you. Remember the story he told you. While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. That's kind of like a story. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told these things. They told a story to the eleven disciples and to all the rest who were with them. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna the uh, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. These mighty, mighty men on whom the future of God's mission in the world rested. And here they are, they've got the first news that this extraordinary miracle has happened. And they've heard for the first time that their Lord is resurrected and life is beginning anew. And how do they react? But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. (laughs) What a glorious moment for the early church. But Peter, God bless Peter, rose and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in and he saw linen cloths by themselves and he went home marvelling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village, that's two other disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other while you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. And he said to them, what things? Tell me the story. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said. But him they did not see. And he, that is this mysterious stranger alongside them in the road, <laughs> said to them, Oh foolish ones. How rude. <laughs> you know, they just met him. And he's insulting them. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that is to say he told them the story of all the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Wow. <laughs> How odd. <laughs> and they said to each other, you know, imagine these two. And they said, you know, this guy, he's just broken bread and now he's vanished. They could have said, I don't think they could have like, ooh. I think they were like, <laughs> did our hearts not burn within us? Well, he talked to us in the road. Well, he opened to us the scriptures. Well, he told us that amazing story. And he rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And he found the eleven and those who were, with, who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told the story of what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're here and that you are our great teacher. Yes. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move among us this morning and that you would renew our minds. Lord, and that we would understand in a new way the breadth and the scale of this extraordinary story that you are unfolding across the ages. Lord Jesus, come and enlarge our hearts and our minds to what you're doing on the earth and how our lives fit in with your great story. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay, so this is a story about stories. And I want to say, I think there are at least five stories in this sto story. And I just want to say a little bit about each of the five stories, and then we can all go home. Um, before eating cake. Uh, okay, the first story is the story that is ignored. And that is uh, 
uh, kind of we, we get to that in the first 11 verses, uh, where the women uh, who have, have been kind of faithful followers and disciples of Jesus, um, and they've fallen around for, th- for the years of his ministry, and they were going to the tomb to, to honor him, and they see that he's not there, and these angels are there, and they don't know what this is all about, but they go home and they tell their story. And this is really an extraordinary thing that has happened. In the, in the first century, uh, the, the kind of culture in this period in history and at this time was that a, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. It was not considered reliable enough uh, for very, various reasons, maybe the, the perception was that, that women could, uh, were kind of the weaker sex, maybe that they, were, they could e- easily kind of confuse things or, or become too emotional or any one of these kind of other kind of strange reasons. But for whatever reason, the reality is this, that, that a woman's testimony was not deemed reliable enough to be considered admissible evidence in a court. And so it's an extraordinary thing that Jesus, the God of heaven and earth, would choose to disclose this extraordinary news that he has risen first to women. It's an extraordinary thing. You know, it is not what you would do if you were thinking logically. It's not, it's not the way you would... If you were planning on changing the world, this is not the way you would begin. And yet this is how Jesus chooses to begin. By revealing this extraordinary miracle, the great miracle, the hinge point of all history, the resurrection to a group of people that he knew would not be believed. Extraordinary. That is an extraordinary thing. But God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even for things that are not To bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If we pay attention to the story that the the whole Bible is telling us, we would realize that actually this isn't just the way that God acted at this key moment in history. This is the way that God always acts. Right from the beginning, in the book of Genesis, after eight chapters from uh, Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 of kind of disaster, a group of people get together in a place called Babel and they want to make a name for themselves. They want to change the world and they build themselves a great big tower which is what people do often when they want to make a name for themselves, whether literal or metaphorical. 
they build an empire, a kingdom. And it says they built it all the way into the heavens. And they said, look at us. And you can imagine, can you imagine living in the ancient world and, and you know, a kind of one-story dwelling being like state-of-the-art. And you're walking one day across the plains and you see this strange object in the distance rising. And the closer you get to it, the bigger it gets. And it, it's almost like it's touching the clouds and in awe of this extraordinary structure, you think, wow. Who are the people who have built this? They must be really something. But in that story, when it's told in Genesis 11, it's hilarious. They think they've built this tower that reaches into the heavens, but God has to come down to have a look at it. <laughs> and actually, the truth be told, he has to come down quite a long way. <laughs> What? What's going on there? Oh, you built a tower. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> kind of like the way when your kid builds a tower out of Lego, you go, oh wow, you built a tower. And now it's fallen over. <laughs> All the plans to make a name, to build an empire, to change the world, to force it into our image, come to nothing. But that's how often we would begin if we were wanting to change something. And in the very next chapter, Genesis 12, we see God starting his plan to transform the world. And how does he do it? He picks one bloke. And one family. And he says, I am going to bless you that all the families of the world may be blessed. One guy in obscurity, in a nowhere place. And he says, I'm going to bless you. And all the world may be blessed. This is how God always does things. If you pay attention to the story, this is always the way that God goes about things. It tells a story of the creator who has not abandoned his creation, and he's not planning to whisk people away from it, but he's steadfastly committed to redeeming it. But he wants to do it through blessing his people that they may be a blessing through the world he's not building a structure he's building a family the first story is the story that is ignored the second story is the story that is misunderstood and if you read up to verse 24 you'll get to the point where Cleopas is, is, is telling, I mean, it's hilarious when you think about it, isn't it? This is like the ruler of heaven and earth, you know, getting told the story <laughs> by this bloke who really has no idea what he's talking about. 
But you know, I mean, have you not? I mean, are you the only one who hasn't heard? What's going on in Jerusalem? Let me tell you all about it. You know, I mean, Jesus, he must have wanted to say something at that point, surely. I mean, I know he's without sin, but come on. Um, he must have went, you know, you plonker. Uh, Way up as the story, it was he, his hope was that that Jesus would be the one to who would redeem Israel. That was his story. That was the story that he was living in. You see, he had he had read the scriptures and he knew that the the, 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 the central one of the central narratives of the Old Testament was that God's people were enslaved to a pagan nation and they cried out to him for deliverance. And he sent a man, Moses, to lead them out into freedom. And, and he knew that actually this, this cycle had repeated itself again and again down Israel's history where you would have... Um, the people enslaved normally because of their own mistakes, their own sins, and the people would, would suffer and they would cry out and God would send them a Samson or, or a Gideon or maybe a David who would liberate them from their enemies. But the thing about this story is it was a repeating cycle. Because even in these individuals, even great people like Moses and David and Gideon and Samson, they had the same fault line running through them that had caused the people of God to be enslaved in the first place. So even though they were free, the people of God, again and again and again and again, they were freed only to fall back into the same bondage. They were stuck in a narrative that was going nowhere. And this was the only story that Cleopas had. And his hope was that Jesus would be another David or another Moses or another Gideon he would be one who would free them he didn't have any grid for anything beyond that Cleopas was living in a story which ended in all of these cycles in the exile Israel from Jerusalem. And the terrible thing about the exile from Jerusalem was not so much that they lost their homeland, but they, they lost the presence of God. The fact is that they, around Jewish life, around kind of uh, 
thinking about the, the nation of Israel. It was all built around the temple, and the temple was all built around the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies was the place where the presence of God lived. It was the place where heaven and earth intersected. And Israel, because of this cycle of rebellion and deliverance and rebellion and deliverance and rebellion and deliverance and rebellion and deliverance, in the end were exiled from the very presence of God. And though they had come back to their homeland, they had never, and this is how they would have understood it in the first century, they, they had never really come back from the exile from the presence. Because the temple never really quite became the glorious thing that it was in David's day or in, sorry, in Solomon's day where the, the priests could not minister. They could not stand to minister because of the glory of the Lord that filled the temple. And they were longing. They were longing not for a return from, an, from exile geographically, but from the spiritual exile from the presence of God. And you see, this, this story is itself a retelling of a further story where the first people, Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were also exiled into the world from the presence of God. But right in the beginning, in that Genesis account, when God's creating these pairs, these wonderful pairs of, you know, sun and moon, earth and sea, Light and darkness, day and night, ultimately man and woman. What he's telling us is this, that, that heaven and earth were created for each other. They were created to be complementary parts of one another. They were created for that connection. And the exile that Adam and Eve experienced was repeated in Israel's exile and for the whole of the human race from the presence of their father. Cleopas misunderstood what had happened. He thought that because Jesus ended on the cross, he was a failed Messiah, because that is where failed Messiahs ended, on the cross. And his hope was gone. And there are many in our world who are stuck in their own hopeless stories. Sometimes these are on massive scales. Like, for example, when we have a recession and a credit crunch and we think, what on earth are we going to do to get our economy going? 
And what we do is we build it on the same broken foundation. Because we don't have another story. Which only ensures that actually the same thing will happen in 20 years time. Or on a personal level. We see people building and rebuilding their lives, but it's always, it's always on sand. And we know that the cycles continue. Many in our world have their hope in the wrong Messiah. They have the wrong idea, just like Cleopas, they have the wrong idea of what the Messiah, the one who will save them, looks like. Some of them think it looks like money. Or it looks like a promotion. Or it looks even like family and kids. The hope is in the wrong story. The wrong Messiah. The third story is the story reimagined. The story that Jesus, the stranger, tells them on the road. Jesus is the reversal of every curse. All the promises of God are yes in him. He is the fulcrum of all history. He is in his life the embodiment of Israel. He is the one who, who succeeded where Israel failed. He is the one, he is the perfect son. The one who lives in that perfect connection with his father, who fulfills the covenant promises, and who lays down his life to be a light to the Gentiles. He is the one who reimagines the story, this broken story of Israel, as something glorious. Too often the church is more focused on ideas than on this story. And so we create um, people who can argue, but we don't make space for artists who can imagine. We don't make space for the storytellers who can find new ways of articulating this ancient story, the retelling of this old tale. We need artists who can understand and re-articulate this beautiful story that has been kept out for too long. Fourthly, there is a story in this that is performed. It's actually an action. It's a thing that happens. Jesus sits down for a meal with um, Cleopas and probably his wife and he does something he breaks bread he, the story 
of his death and resurrection becomes something that is contained in an action. In a thing. This is a story that you can participate in. That you can repeat again and again and again. It's amazing that that phrase that is used in this story when, when Jesus says, or when the Bible says that he broke the bread and their eyes were opened. It's almost exactly the same words as we find in Genesis 3-7. When Adam and Eve eat the apple and it says their eyes were opened. Why? Because Jesus is reversing the curse. And in the original story whereby Adam and Eve had their eyes opened, realized they were naked. Ah! <laughs> it's like that moment in the dream. <laughs> and got busy sewing together leaves to cover themselves. Here, their eyes are opened. What to what? The sacrifice. The broken body, the shed blood that was intended to clothe them and cover them. This is Jesus retelling the story through an action. And this is something that the church also needs to do. To retell this story through action. To retell this story through the struggle for social justice. To retell this story through the love that we have for the people who are around us in our lives. To live lives that are only explainable in the light of Jesus' sacrifice. Of Jesus' death and resurrection. To retell it again and again and again and use words if necessary. Because after Jesus retells the story, what happens is the fifth story is that Cleopas and his wife run back to Jerusalem, run back to the place. See, they've been walking away from Jerusalem, that, that place where historically the presence has resided. They're, they're, as they're walking away, they're, they're, they're not aware of it, but they're retelling the exile story of this disappointed couple, man and wife, just like Adam and Eve, walking away from the presence of God, hopeless and disappointed. And in this moment, they're suddenly, the story is reversed and they rush back to retell the story of what Jesus has done. And this is our story to retell. N.T. Wright, the theologian, said that the Bible is like a five-act story and the final act is missing. 
but it's ours to join in. And you can imagine that, that a group of actors, if they were given a script, a five-act five script with one act missing, and they were, they were told, now improvise the end. The extent to which they knew and immersed themselves and became familiar with and memorized and reconsidered and slept on it and thought about it and dreamed about it, the first four acts that they had would be the extent to which they could step onto the stage and improvise the final act. Because everything that they did would flow from what they knew had already happened. And that, that is our task. We've got the first four acts of this extraordinary story, this extraordinary drama. And I'm afraid that the, that the church at times has boiled down salvation to a decision. Rather than understanding it in its fullness, which is about the creator of the universe being unprepared to allow his creation to fall into decay and coming back to make all things new. All things new. And sending a renewed people out into every area of society to bless, as the original promise to Abraham said, every area of society. God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing. So that you can carry this extraordinary, hope-giving, life-giving story into every disappointed place in the world, every hopeless place, every, every place that has built itself on a fault line of the wrong story, of the wrong Messiah. Our instruction is to carry this story of hope, to tell it through action, to explain it through our words, To retell this beautiful story of the God who refuses to let death win. And who comes to us in hope and love. Not to build a tower, but to start a family. Amen, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for this extraordinary story. Lord, and God, I... I pray that we would, as a church, become immersed in it, Lord. This wonderful tale of, of redemption, Lord, that though we were exiled from the presence, yet now there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Father, help us to know it so well that it flows from us in every conversation in every action in the way we do our jobs 
in the way we live our lives, in the way we treat our neighbors. Lord, let us learn it and, and use our time on the stage to write an amazing act for you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Folks, folks, we, 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 we always say that we, we love to, we love to act out this extraordinary story of salvation. And one of the ways we love to act it out is through praying for people who are sick, because salvation is bigger. Although it does include saving your soul, it also means transforming your body. And so if you are sick in any way, if you have um, uh, pain or illness in any way, we would love to pray with you and see this story repeated again and again in your life of God's saving power.